a lot of the work that you've done in your undergrad and even now has focused on blood pressure. So um, I'd like to get into sort of blood pressure and the factors that affect it and why it's important, just as sort of an intro, maybe for listeners who may not be familiar with, you know, everybody knows what blood pressure is, but you know, why it's important and sort of what regulates blood pressure. So can we just talk about for one, you know, when we hear the word hypertension or high blood pressure, kind of what that means uh, physiologically and what are some of the factors that are regulating blood pressure in the body? Sure. So a lot of people are probably familiar with systolic and diastolic blood pressure, systolic being sort of the top or higher number and diastolic being the lower or bottom, bottom number. And hypertension is at least now defined as a systolic above 130 for systolic and 80 for diastolic. And the reason why that's important is because if you're classified as having hypertension, it's critical that you get treatment to reduce blood pressure because there's a variety of epidemiological studies suggesting that hypertension is associated with stroke, heart attack, uh, and a whole host of other comorbidities related to the cardiovascular system and also other systems, particularly the brain, the kidney, and other, other organ systems. And it's interesting because, and correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, but I think weren't the hypertension guidelines like recently redefined where they sort of lowered the threshold for what's considered elevated hypertension, like pretty much anything over, I think 120 over 80 is considered elevated hypertension right now? Right. Yeah. So right now, 120 over 80 is, so if, if you're above 80 or 120, you're classified as having elevated blood pressure. Uh, whereas previously, when I was at the University of Delaware, our threshold for hypertension was 140 over 90. And I think just given the vast amount of data, just showing that lower is better, uh, of course, to a point, and maybe we'll get to that a little bit later, mm -hmm. but you know, certainly getting down to 110 over 70 is monumentally better than 120 over 80. Uh, so, or above those thresholds, which is why they're really trying to catch people and keep them below those limits. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And um, do you, are you aware of any of the stats on sort of the prevalence of, of hypertension in say, maybe, you know, we can focus on the U.S. or we can think about like worldwide, but you know, what's, what's the prevalence of hypertension? And given the caveat that, you know, since the redefining of hypertension, obviously that's going to put more people kind of in that hypertensive category, but what are kind of the stats on like how many people are hypertensive? Yeah, so in America right now for adults, it's around 50%. It does vary quite a bit based on how it's measured and what sort of population you're dealing with. And the incidence of hypertension increases with age. So in folks over the age of 65, the incidence can be high as eight out of 10 people or four out of five people. Uh, so it can be quite, quite predominant. Yeah, and I'm sure this is something that we'll talk about later as well. But, you know, you say 50% kind of hypertension, that seems to parallel the incidence of things like obesity, diabetes, where it seems like we're getting up into that, you know, around 50% of people have maybe obesity or overweight or diabetes. And right. so kind of that clustering of risk factors that often come together, hypertension, overweight, and things like that. But that's something we'll get into as we discuss uh, some of your current work later, for sure. Um, you mentioned, uh, you know, up to a point, lower blood pressure is better. And so this is a question that sometimes people always ask me or if they come to me, you know, and say, oh, you know, here's my blood pressure. Like, is this good? Or, you know, how low is too low? So you mentioned that, you know, 
how low is too low when it comes to blood pressure? And, you know, we always think of the detrimental effects of high blood pressure, and we can kind of go back to that in a second, but what could the detrimental effects of, of low blood pressure be? And what might be something that would be considered like a too low of a blood pressure? Yeah. So a threshold that I think has been thrown around a little bit is 90 over 50 for the lower limits. Um, and it starts to become problematic as you get below that, uh, particularly with things like orthostasis, which is simply just the, the act of standing. So, um, you know, many people may not appreciate the fact that every time you stand up about a water bottle's amount of blood actually falls from your central cavities down to your lower limbs. And if you're already just on the threshold of maintaining perfusion uh, through blood pressure to your brain and other organs, uh, that could be problematic, of course, to, to not have blood flow for any amount of time, of course. So uh, then you get into issues with syncope and dizziness and lightheadedness. Um, and it'd be really unfortunate for that to result in a fall, uh, which of course isn't, isn't great. So that would be sort of the detrimental effects. And 90 over 50 is about uh, what most people would consider about that threshold. Yeah, for sure. I've never, you know, measured mine in the case when this like might happen, but I'm, I'm one who sometimes experiences, particularly if I'm dehydrated, the, the orthostatic right. hypotension. So it's like, you know, maybe I've done like the sauna for a little too long or something and you stand up, you're like, oh man, you know, you got to <laughs> sit back down for a while. So usually an indication that I need to, to drink a little bit more water probably or, or something like that. But certainly, um, you know, certainly maybe not as um, risky as high blood pressure, but, you know, like you said, low blood pressure, especially maybe for, for older adults and, and people like that, you know, if you could risk falling or, or passing out from low blood pressure, that could certainly be, certainly be a risk there. Um, but what about the detrimental effects of, of high blood pressure? So hypertension is obviously, is obviously bad, but like, what are some of the detrimental effects in the body of, of high blood pressure? You know, we can get into things like damage to, to certain organs and other things like that, but what are some of the main effects of high blood pressure over time, kind of the chronic uh, negative effects of high blood pressure? Yeah, so there's a variety, and you sort of alluded to different organs. Um, one example would be the kidney, another would be the brain, and there's a thought that generally the high pressure that the vasculature has to deal with. Um, so obviously you have the heart pumping and you have blood vessels, so you can think of a hose. And if you keep pressuring, adding pressure to that hose, of course, the amount of elasticity, um, you know, it'll stretch. And the adaptation, of course, is to make it stiffer. And if you have an adaptation to have a stiffer vessel, then, you know, that, that comes with its own host of, of issues over time. Um, and, you know, the higher arterial stiffness is a component of aging, um, but there's certainly modifiable risk factors like exercise and diet that can sort of attenuate that change. So that'd be an example of vascular stiffening, for example, um, that'd be detrimental over time. Yeah. And it's funny, like, to think about, you know, I've, you know, as I've learned about all these concepts, like, you know, arterial stiffness and studied vascular dysfunction during, during kind of like my training, we always have this term, it's like, oh, you know, it's a natural part of aging. And I'm like beginning to kind of think that that's less true the more I learn about, you know, people who say maintain a, a regimen of exercise like throughout their lives or are eating, you know, a general, you know, this is a weird term, but like a healthy diet, you know, like something like mm -hmm. maybe a Mediterranean diet or a diet that's low in sugar. Like, it doesn't seem like you know, arterial stiffness, sometimes if you have these individuals, it's, you know, not any more elevated than like a younger individual and their vascular function. So, you know, you measure something like flow mediated dilation or any other measure of kind of 
peripheral vascular function, they seem to be somewhat normal. So are you kind of, maybe do you share that sentiment? Whereas like what we commonly think of natural parts of aging are maybe more so effects of lifestyle that change with age or how do you, how do you kind of think about that? And maybe the same thing goes with blood pressure. You know, we have this common notion, oh, blood pressure, it just increases with age. But I've seen like some very interesting studies in say like hunter gatherer tribes. And I say studies, but maybe it was just one study where it's like, there's not really this rise in blood pressure. It kind of stays around like 100 to 110, like mostly throughout their life, which would indicate maybe they don't have as much arterial stiffening, vascular dysfunction with age, um, which likely is a result of sort of their more natural, I guess, uh, lifestyle. Yeah. And, and I would agree with that notion on a general basis. Of course, there's genetic components as well. Um, and to what extent the, the whole the genetic versus lifestyle uh, <laughs> argument, whatever camp you're in, but clearly there's an interaction with both. But I would agree. And, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I think I saw Mike Joyner on Peter Atiyah's podcast. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he was talking about was some of the classic studies with um, Olympians versus recreationally trained athletes. And of course, the Olympians tend to live longer. And I think I'm pretty sure he mentioned that even those who medal in the Olympics have better longevity than those who just <laughs> attend or participate in the Olympics. So, um, you know, VO2 max at least as a general surrogate, whether or not it's actually VO2 max or all the other factors that go into having that capability. Um, you know, clearly there's some physiology occurring there. So um, it's inevitable, but we can definitely change the slope of what happens over time, I think, more than we might imagine uh, just generally. Yeah, the nature, nature kind of versus nurture uh, argument is always very interesting because it's like, even with like the longevity thing, you know, there's all this kind of data now, like a higher VO2 max is associated with a better longevity, but we know there's a significant, and Joyner, Mike Joyner has written a lot about that, like a significant genetic component of VO2 max. So it's like, okay, so is it, yes, VO2 max is important, but is it training that got you to the VO2 max? Is it genetics that got you to the, to the VO2 max? Um, but I also, I found that discussion interesting of the longevity and like the Olympians and even those who medal because you know, I'm sure you're aware of sort of the uh, kind of debate that high intensity, prolonged exercise throughout life may be like detrimental for cardiovascular health. And, and none of that data would support that at all, like the higher kind of calcification. You know, if, if these Olympians who are at the pinnacle of extreme exercise training are like living longer, I think that would say something about like, well, you know, maybe it's, it's not as it's not as detrimental. Um, to health. So, and I'm less convinced about that. You know, I've heard some things um, from Ben Levine and even, you know, yeah. uh, with Joyner on Peter Atia. I think they discussed that a little bit and Atia had a couple other people on, but, you know, just discussing the data, I don't think we know um, final, you know, I don't think we have a lot of final kind of information on that, but it's like, I'm not, I'm not as convinced that the detrimental effects of like exercise on, on cardiovascular health are necessarily a uh, having an adverse effect on longevity. So not sure if you have any thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to mention actually, uh, just as recently as two weeks ago at the uh, Integrative Physiology of Exercise meeting from ACSM. Um, so Ben Levine, who's a world-renowned cardiologist, physician researcher um, in human physiology and performance and health. And uh, he, he actually was the chair of a, a session just getting at that topic. How much is too much is too much bad uh, in regard to exercise, longevity, and cardiovascular health. And, you know, there's a lot of conflicting data, a lot of issues with some of the analyses that I think have been done previously, but I think he definitely shares the notion that um, aside from atrial fibrillation due to 
or yeah, due to sort of the stretching that occurs with all that volume moving through the heart so often, um, it doesn't really seem to be anything overly compelling to suggest that it is detrimental. Yeah, that's interesting. I um I unfortunately missed that meeting, but I wonder if they'll be doing kind of like a, you know, sometimes they'll publish like reviews of like certain sessions. So I'd be excited if they were to publish something like that. But there's plenty of kind of reviews out there and Levine has published a lot on that. But it's a super interesting topic and obviously one that I am sort of uh passionate about and have a bias towards because you know I, you don't want to being an endurance athlete you don't want to say oh what i'm doing is like damaging my heart so we all kind of have our uh, our right. battles that we're gonna <laughs> defend <laughs> yeah all right so um i want to maybe kind of move along and, and segue a little bit into some of your more recent work that you did during uh your postdoc so you ended up uh, studying blood loss and pain medications and things like that, which which might seem kind of random and maybe a diversion from your typical research track. So how'd you get into studying uh, pain medications? Yeah, so it was pretty interesting. I uh, My postdoctoral mentor, Craig Crandall, has done a lot of work with the uh, Army um, in the past. And when I was joining the lab, they were just getting a study off the ground, looking at the effects of different pain medications and how they affect cardiovascular regulation. And the reason is because the analgesics or pain medications that they were using in battlefield settings, a lot of the data were really derived from studies in animals. And there wasn't too much known about how they affect the cardiovascular system, uh, particularly when you're in a hypovolemic or low blood volume state um, as a result of hemorrhage or blood loss from trauma or injury. So we ended up doing a whole host of studies in the lab. And we of course, didn't uh, so we didn't bleed people out or <laughs> induce trauma or anything, but there's a technique that you can essentially lay somebody down and put their, their lower body in a chamber, and then you connect a vacuum to it, and then just turn on the vacuum, and that creates suction. And just like standing, some of the blood from your upper body will go down to your lower body. Um, so it's a nice way to simulate hemorrhage. And uh, interestingly, I'll, I'll also mention that at the Mayo Clinic, they actually did a blood removal study and compared it to the effects of this uh, vacuum chamber approach. And they found that it was uh, the relation with the physiological responses were quite quite well tracking with each other. So, um, so it is a valid measure. Uh, in any case, we would essentially work with an anesthesiologist to test several different pain medications to see if they affected how the body deals with uh, blood loss. As you can imagine, there's a coordinated response to try to, um, of course, vasoconstrict and uh, maintain perfusion pressure to your vital organs like your brain and um, other, other areas that are needed. So um, yeah, it, it, was, it was pretty interesting to, uh, to work with that, um, all those medications. We tested ketamine, fentanyl, and morphine. And uh, each of those we did about 30, 30 people so uh, over the course of that and a placebo arm, it was around 175 trials over the course of uh, the three drugs. So a lot of a lot of testing, and for each of those, we essentially would increase the suction in the lower body uh, chamber until someone had signs of presyncope. So it's when their blood pressure dipped below 80 millimeters of mercury mm -hmm. for systolic. So again, sort of that threshold of 90. Um, but here we were looking at sort of the decompensation point. When does the body hangs on and then all of a sudden blood pressure just starts to plummet and that's when we turn the vacuum off and and people return just fine after a couple of breaths um they don't go unconscious or anything uh, in some cases they don't even notice that their blood pressure had dropped they're just laying there and uh just just going with the flow 
Yeah. And so when you're doing this, um, this like lower body negative pressure thing, when they get to that sort of 80 millimeters of mercury pressure, do you have, is there like a correlate to like how much blood loss like that would be equivalent to, or is there a way of like figuring that out? Yeah. So the, we did a staged approach. So every couple of minutes we would increase the suction a little bit more and providing minus 40 or 40 millimeters of mercury of negative pressure. So minus 40 in the box, that's about equivalent to losing about a liter of blood. And on average, the folks would typically finish at about 60 millimeters of mercury uh, of negative pressure, which if you drew the line from zero, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, um, it'd be somewhere in the ballpark of 1.5 liters or so um, with some variability, of course. We, we actually had one individual who during the placebo trial, uh, we went all the way to minus 100 and we wow. hung out there for, I think, an additional six minutes because uh, that was the maximum that we decided for the chamber um, for safety and whatnot. And uh, they didn't have presyncope. So we just, okay, well, you, you passed the test, I guess. You'd be a great uh, pilot. Uh, no issues with um, sort of blood, blood flow coordination in the body. But um, yeah, and then some people, you know, I actually was a relatively low tolerant person. Um, so, you know, for me, perhaps anywhere from half a liter to a liter doesn't, doesn't do too well for me. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of variability. Yes. So you got to try out the, the negative pressure thing. You actually got in oh, there yeah. and, and tested it. Yep. Yeah. It's an interesting feeling. I don't recall exactly what I felt. Um, but some of the typical things are pretty similar to what you would experience when you would stand up. Um, if you've ever had that sensation of being a little lightheaded or a little bit dizzy, um, sometimes people get a little bit, I guess, either sweaty or pale in the face where they just feel sort of off. Um, but there's a variety of, of things. But I will say that anecdotally for me, um, I'm similar to you is if, if I'm in the heat and I'm exercising, I'm a little dehydrated. I think those sensations are a little bit stronger than um, anything I experienced during the lower body negative pressure testing. Um, but of course, that's very carefully controlled. We're measuring your blood pressure for each individual heartbeat with a specialized uh, finger blood pressure device. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of things uh, monitored throughout that to make sure it's safe and everything's good. No, for sure. For sure. I think that I'll, uh, I think any scientist who's doing like a research study, they should have to do, you know, whatever protocol like they're doing, you know, it's like, if you're running VO2 max tests, you should have at least gone through one VO2 max test yourself. So you right. know what it's, you know what it's like. And, you know, all jokes aside, I think that, that it is very valuable because, you know, in the process of recruiting participants and consenting them and things, you have to describe all of these methods. And so it's like, if you've done it yourself, you can really tell them, here's what to expect, you know, it's safe. And, um, you know, and then, if, you know, if they ask you like, you know, have you experienced it or what are, you know, what should I expect from this? Then you kind of know, you know, what's going on. So um, definitely, and it's, and it's always fun to kind of know what the participants are feeling as well when you're doing certain protocols. Um, Right. You, men you mentioned that you tested, so it was ketamine, uh, morphine, and, and fentanyl. Fentanyl. So, what were uh, some of the effects of them individually? If they were, if the effects on um, kind of blood loss were different, um, you know, could you give us maybe a, a quick summary of the effects of these different drugs? Sure. So, uh, ketamine uh, ended up raising blood pressure and heart rate a little bit. Um, just at rest. So after is uh, administered before the lower body negative pressure testing. And that continued. Uh, so in other words, blood pressure and heart rate stayed a little bit higher. 
But as far as the compensation point where your body decides it's no longer going to compensate and things tank, uh, the time, even though blood pressure was a little bit higher, the time course was actually the same. So the we would consider that the, the cumulative stress 